Hi, I am your host, Nick, and I am here with Tashin Fogelman. Tashin has a background in monastics and operates as a coach. He writes on Tashin.com, which is T-A-S-S-H-I-N.com, where he covers a variety of of wonderful topics that are really illuminating and entertaining, and I always enjoy reading. Welcome, Tashin. Thanks so much. Really happy to be here with you, Nick. For this episode, I wanted to do something completely different. I usually spend hours developing notes and questions and topics, and a lot of my episodes, um, even though I don't want it to be this way, Clearly, I I want them to have a kind of structure, and I usually do a lot of work beforehand to make sure that's affected. But in this, I wanted it to be more about the present moment. And so for this episode, I have no notes of any kind, no bullet points. Uh, it's just me and you. And what I would like us to do on this episode is, if you're willing, I would love for us to start with five minutes of a guided meditation for both um, myself and uh, our listeners. And if we could just start with that and then try to maintain awareness of the present moment throughout the episode as we uh, commune and cover a variety of topics, whatever comes up in the moment, I think that would be really beautiful. Amazing. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So start whenever you are ready. Great. So... Whatever place you find yourself in, see if you can settle into a comfortable posture. And in particular, allow your body to relax. If there's any muscular tension, maybe in the jaws or the shoulders or the legs, see if you can relax that. I always like to Bring a gentle, easy smile to my face as well. So having a comfortable, relaxed body and an easy, relaxed smile on the face. With that established, bring your awareness into your lower body. Feeling your abdomen, your hips, your legs, your feet, the ground underneath you. Feel what your lower body feels like right now. Still comfortable and relaxed with a gentle, easy smile on your face, but bringing awareness into the lower body. Notice what that's like. Is it comfortable or uncomfortable? Familiar or unfamiliar? 
Is it warm or cold? And how's the breathing? Is it fast or slow? It's less about attunement to particular details and more about becoming aware of what your qualitative experience of the lower body is like right now. Finally, notice that in your experience, you are the center of the universe. Your whole experience centers around you and your body. And place your awareness of the lower body at the center of that. connecting to the sights and sounds around you. Everything that you can possibly be aware of. Allowing awareness to expand, stretch, play, while still rooted and centered right here in the lower body center of the universe. Feel what that's like. And even though the meditation is going to end shortly, you don't actually have to leave this place. Being centered in the lower body with a broad, expansive awareness that stretches out through the whole universe. I'd be curious to hear what that was like for you, friend. I thought that was really beautiful. I was so glad that you explained to the audience how I am the center of the universe. It really <laughs> struck a chord with me. <laughs> you are. <laughs> yeah. But uh, no, I, I, there's so much energy. Um, like when I'm meditating, I can tell you that like when I started meditating, I found it very insightful at first. And then the more I did it, the more just incredible it became as uh, almost a form of nutrition where the practice in and of itself stopped being something I was trying to get better at and something that I simply was enjoying doing to the point where now um, I have a, a fairly easy time accessing it uh, in any situation. And I get a lot of satisfaction from being able to access it in situations that would otherwise own me in a certain way. Like uh, social interaction, I find is is often difficult to 
be fully aware in that moment. And um, I find that it's in those difficult situations where complete awareness is the most fruitful that you can um, it's, it's almost like the greatest superpower is to extend that awareness into all moments. And um, I don't want to paint any differences in any kind of a way, but I find that the experience is much more visceral. Uh, There's something special about it when you would otherwise be distracted and yet you are not. Um, How about you? Like, I know you have a lot of experience with this kind of thing, but I kind of threw this on you out of nowhere and uh, you just rolled with it and you're interacting with where you're going and improvising in that moment. So how, how do you feel about that? Well, it's delightful. Um, you know, I think that this particular practice is mm-hmm. the most useful for the kind of situation that we're in of having a conversation like this, that's, uh, important and enjoyable and, mm-hmm. you know, meaningful to both of us, but also being recorded for others. And if, in my experience, if awareness contracts into say a particular body emotion or a thought, then the situation goes poorly. Mm -hmm. And when it is expansive, both spaciously, but also qualitatively like of, of what kinds of things it includes. So for example, yeah. it could include emotions and thoughts as well as sounds and sights in the room. Right. Then things go well. Like you were saying, it's it's really useful in um, difficult circumstances or important circumstances. So it was nice mm-hmm. to just ground myself in this kind of a practice for this particular conversation. And I also noticed that you were talking a lot about the lower body and uh, this this gave me a sense of like Tai Chi and getting like rooted to the ground that I've listened to a lot of guided meditations, but I actually never heard any that were focused, especially on the lower body. So that was interesting to me. What motivated that direction for you? Well, I've done a lot of practice with the lower body, um, mm-hmm. done a lot of breathing practices that usually center around the abdomen and I've also done practices with the lower body more broadly, including the hips and the legs and the feet. And my experience of that is that that region of the body is particularly conducive to this kind of expanded awareness. Mm, Why is that? Well, if you think about what happens when the awareness gets contracted, if you really look at that, often what's happening is that the sense of space gets small and you are Mm -hmm. focused and zoomed into a particular aspect of your experience. Usually a thought in your head that's auditory or an image or a feeling in your body or some combination of those things. Mm -hmm. And that's all often in the top region of the body, you know, the chest, Mm. the neck, the face, the head around that area. So just by staying low in the body, feeling the awareness in the lower body, you sort of prevent that from happening. And then thoughts can still happen. You can still have thoughts in your head, but 
it's perceived from the, the ground floor, as it were, uh, the thoughts come and go sort of above the lower body and you can participate them in them and allow them to come and go and speak from them, but you don't get stuck in them or contracted on them. That's brilliant. It makes a lot of sense. There's so much meditation work that gets done around the top of your body, like breathing meditation, um, sight related meditation. And I find it interesting that um, paying attention to the parts of your experience, which you typically neglect, is a wonderful way to open your awareness. And it sounds like a practice that is is a great metaphor for how you can approach the entire world that um, I can I can tell you a little bit about my experience. And I actually have a question um, to follow up about this. But when I started getting really, really deep into being present, where um, my present awareness became, I, I don't know, very, very sharp, where I'm no longer identifying with, you know, one second ago, once I got it really, really sharp, my capability of becoming awed by the world just skyrocketed. <laughs> so like, for instance, I work at Costco and I would be at Costco and be like, look at this place. It's huge. <laughs> like, this is incredible. Like all these lights, like this, is it's, it's like so impressive. And you can just like be there and be blown away by the amount of steel and the amount of people and the amount of traffic. And you can just like stand there in a place that you've been for years and just be like, wow, this is crazy. Um, but like that's when, when you stop, I guess, leaning on everything that's ever happened to you, uh, life just gets really, really cool. So I wanted to ask you what, um, what was the experience or what is your experience of like the present moment when you get really, really, uh, deep into, that the the brightness and the light and the the truth of it like what does that feel like to you what's your experience yeah right oh that's so beautiful just hearing that about um you know being at costco and <laughs> yeah. you know you've been there a billion times and yet it's brand right. new and that's right. such a good description of it and it does bring so much wonder into the world so that's that's mm -hmm. definitely an aspect of it this wonder this curiosity um I think another dimension is what we're already talking about of like spaciousness mm -hmm. that the present moment allows awareness to expand rather than be contracted. Um, I think often I'll get various sort of undulatory effects in different sensory systems. So um, lights will be more vibrant they'll be kind of glowing yeah. visually and then there can be similar effects in sounds and then also in the body there's uh, same sort of qualitative flowing vibratory sensations that start to appear mm -hmm. um, and those can be extremely pleasant and you know uh, enter a whole a whole world of fun experiences just through those kinds of pleasant sensations in the body. Um, right. I think another aspect of it is responsiveness where if, if your mind is not fixated on things that 
it thinks or emotions that you feel, then mm -hmm. you can respond appropriately to the situation that you're in. You can find right. yourself saying the perfect thing or yes. moving in the perfect way or understanding where someone is coming from or um, making an intuitive leap about something that you're, some situation you're in or some skill that you're learning or something like that. So there's this aspect of spontaneity and playfulness and responsiveness mm -hmm. that comes in as well. Um, so there's a lot of different aspects of it, but they all sort of feed into each other and grow and are mutually supportive. So it's, it's just delightful. And, and of course, conversely, if you, if you don't go there, if you don't go in the present moment, then there can be sort of, yeah, suffering along all of those dimensions where it's yeah. contracted spatially, you know, um, you start feeling bad emotionally, you have negative thoughts, you're not responding appropriately to the situation. Mm. Um, it's just not as fun. And, and it's causes a variety of forms of suffering. So there's sort of a feedback loop there of the more you notice that it's better to be in the present moment, the more you want to stay there. And the more you notice that it's painful and difficult to not be in it, then the less you want to be there. So, um, right. Yeah, I think that's that's my experience of it. And the point that I would like to emphasize on this that's that I think is pretty cool is that when you're you have a relationship with the present moment in this way, you can choose to rely on memory and you can choose to ruminate on the future, but the fact that that is now a choice and not a necessary constant demand on you empowers you to kind of say, oh, in this moment, I'm actually, I'm just choosing not to be happy because this is important to me. And I know I'm going to go back to that like pervasive happiness. And that way you're, it's kind of an expenditure of a kind, but you're making that choice and it's not foisted upon you. And I feel like mundaneness is another way of looking at this, that like a lot of people will see their bedroom and their workplace and the people they know, and it's all coded with like some kind of mundaneness. And they think that like, that's the norm is that there are all of these mundane things. And then there's the rare, highly salient thing, but that does not have to be the default. Mundane does not have to be the default. It's because of all of our expectations that we have this, this boring life really. But like, it's kind of like, I think it was uh, Aurelius who said, like, look at and understand everything that passes in front of you. And that kind of curiosity and that openness to be like looking at your pen and saying, there's some mystery in this that I don't understand. Like that's, you can approach the whole world that way. And I think that's, that's like so exciting and so wonderful. Yeah, I love the way that you embody that, you know, I was the way you say, like I said, like, wow, earlier. And, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the question that you asked about the pen of like, oh, there's some mystery here. And it's like, what is it? And I'm getting a bit of a, a, a download of what that's like for you. It's interesting to me as well. Yeah. Yeah. And I love, I just love these conversations so much. I mean, it's why I keep doing this. Um, but you also interview people. Can you Tell me a little bit about what that's like for you to be sitting in the chair asking or sitting on the ground, wherever, <laughs> asking somebody questions and um, trying to guide things and um, trying to provide something to an audience. 
Yeah, I just recently started this podcast or YouTube channel a little while mm-hmm. ago and just sort of a hunch that it would be a good thing to do. And the intention that I have for it is a little bit different than other podcasts or channels that I've seen of mm-hmm. I'm just trying to follow my own interest and ideally have the conversation that I would want to be having anyway, and then I'll record it and share it with others in case it's interesting. So Mm -hmm. I pretty intentionally put very low effort into editing or like post-processing or post-production or things like that. Like I do a little bit of it just for politeness basically, but um, (laughs) my goal is to just follow my curiosity of, oh, this is someone that I want to talk to, that there's something here that I want to learn about. And if I record it, probably that interest, that curiosity will be of benefit to others. And I can Mm -hmm. trust the draw that's bringing me to that conversation. So beforehand, I really um, connect to why I want to be talking to that person and Mm -hmm. list out the questions that I have for them that I'm hoping to learn from them. And those are sort of um, first order questions where they're like stepping stones of, I'm I'm planning to ask these questions, but I don't have to, and I'm going to f- really trust the interest in the moment. So if if something comes up that's even more fascinating than the things I'd planned to ask about, then I'm going to follow my own curiosity and be authentic to that. And often that will require me to reveal aspects of myself and why I'm interested and share a little mm-hmm. bit of that, uh, yeah. which isn't something that I expected, but it seems helpful. And yeah, I'd say it's really about following my own curiosity and then trusting that that is itself an act of service to others. That's awesome. Um, what's weighing on me right now is that you spent several years at a monastic academy and I don't know anything about that mm. um, as far as like what that what that life is like. So I'm curious what that was like for you. And um, I would also say that I actually know very little about Buddhism. Like I've read a few books, but uh, I would say share whatever you think is interesting or what people may not know about what that life is like. Great. Yes. Um, Well, it's a pretty young organization. It started as a monastic residential training center in 2013 and then um, has been growing. So they have a location in California now, and they have a location in Canada, and they're possibly starting up a fourth location soon. So um, yeah, it's been growing over the last, I guess, eight years now. And I've been lucky enough to be involved in that community off and on since it started. Um, Mm -hmm. I did a retreat in 2013 with them, and then I trained there from 2015 to 2017, and then left for about a year and then came back to help start the California location and was there for just shy of three years this most recent time and left there about a month ago, five, six weeks ago. And yeah, I think what's really unusual about this community and that organization is they are extremely dedicated to a rigorous form of awakening and enlightenment and contemplative practice Uh, along the lines of, say, traditional Asian monasteries. Mm. Uh, But they're also really trying to bring that to our our culture, to Western culture. And they're also trying to unify contemplative training with 
what you might call leadership training and mm. a dedication to service in the world and particularly service in the world with an awareness of the complex, multifaceted global problems that we're currently facing, like, for example, environmental degradation, nuclear weapons, AI, AI issues, things like this. So mm. how is it possible that deepening in contemplative practice could create the kinds of leaders that are needed for the resolution of these complex human caused problems? Uh, right. That's sort of the question at the heart of that organization. And it's something that's touched me deeply in both areas, right? Like, so my meditation training deepened immensely over the years that I spent there. Um, and I'll be grateful for that training for the rest of my life. And then also um, on the side of what we call responsibility, you know, I'd say, frankly, when I started training there, I, I didn't really care too much about others or the world or like being of service. It, mm. it seemed like, yeah, that's a good thing to do, I guess, sort of. I just right. want to get better at meditation. Um, but it really put a fire in my heart for actually resolving the problems that we're facing at, at a global scale. And then also, you know, um, a passion for what you might say, small scale service, like uh, just helping people in an everyday sort of sense, um, or even this interaction of just genuinely connecting to people and <laughs> uh, being authentic and revealing yourself and learning about other people and uh, participating in the world, you might say. So I think that might give a little bit of context about that, that it's, you know, it is a monastic training environment, deep dedication to meditation practice, contemplative training, and a really kind of unusual spin with trying to bring it to this culture and also having a focus on say leadership development and skills training and service in the world. What is the difficulty of bringing those older traditions to America? The way I'm thinking about it, I was watching the chef's table the other day, which is on Netflix and they said something, something like, if tradition does not change, it dies. And that was a strange idea to me because usually when we think of tradition, we think of doing the same thing every year, maybe once a year or whatever, um, and then maintaining this thing as a memory of the past. But what they were saying was that the tradition itself, this practice has to adapt so that it may continue into the future. So I'm wondering about how does um, the monastery and how does Buddhism have to adapt throughout time now in America in order to increase its usefulness and it, I guess its communicability for people in the world? Right. I mean, that is such an important question, I think, and one that I've wrestled with deeply, both for myself and the organization, and of course, for the world at large. And I don't think, um, I or Maple have a complete answer to this, this yet, but I'll tell mm -hmm. you some clues that I've found, sure. some clues. Um, you know, I looked at myself, I'd say thriving in that organization and really growing and benefiting from my time there. And I saw other people say having a hard time and facing challenges and a whole spectrum in between, right? Or right. sometimes thriving in this way, but having a hard time in that way. And um, really, really chewed on that. What, what, what's happening here? Why is this 
hard sometimes or really beneficial other times and what's going on here. And I think a huge aspect of it is um, how to put it. Uh, this might be overly simplistic, but it's how I think about it. And I'd be curious what you think. But traditional Asian Buddhist monasteries are, to my understanding, basically collectivist institutions in collectivist cultures, right? Mm. There's a sense that, um, you know, we're connected to each other and the community is important and the priority of the group is, you know, more important than the needs of a particular individual. And when uh, one person is hurting, then we're all hurting. And when the group is thriving as a whole, then we're all thriving. And there's a wisdom to that. Um, it works very well and arguably uh, it's a good default for humans. And yet this culture, Western culture, American culture, the culture that I grew up in is not a collectivist society. It's an individualistic society where we celebrate individuals and uh, uniqueness and variety and following your dreams and your passions and trusting your own heart and you know leaning into the ways in which you're idiosyncratic and expressing those. And that has a wisdom too. It's, it's tremendously beautiful. It's wonderful to see the variety that comes out in humans when they're free to express themselves individually and of course uh, free to live their lives the way that they want to. And there's, there is a wisdom in that as well. And yet I think collectively it, it, it causes suffering individualism in a variety of ways, but also there's um, you know, in the monastic setting of trying to adapt these institutions to our society, I think there's a lot of friction there because you're importing a collectivist institution from a collectivist society into an individualistic culture. And a lot of the problems that I saw people having with the monastic training environment, uh, I think could be largely explained by that framing. Um, and, and actually thinking about it now, I see ways in which I didn't struggle as much as many people do with that kind of environment. And I think that that might be at least partially causally explained by me having been exposed to uh, basically collectivist institutions before mm -hmm. I ever did monastic training. So, you know, I, I worked on a farm for a summer uh, in college before I did anything like a meditation retreat or uh, <clears throat> monastic training. And that was just such a wake up call for me, like living with other people and working with them and living on a schedule and, you know, being responsible for cleaning up after yourself and, you know, pretty mm -hmm. basic things. But I was, you know, in college and uh, had been an only child and kind of just in my own little world. And that broke me out of a lot of uh, assumptions and patterns, um, even before I got into monastic training several years before. Yeah. And um, so I think I think that that is a huge difficulty, especially, you know, um, the question of adapting monasteries is, is just one part of this larger question of what right. does Buddhism need to do to adapt to our culture. But I, I really believe it's a critical one because monasteries are um, sort of the deep end of contemplative training. And mm. it has to be at the core of a spiritual tradition to have people that are truly uh, deep in, in that tradition and have done the practices and seen them to their end. And uh, monastic training is, is, by and large, where that happens. So I think it's just one aspect of the larger question of how does a, a tradition or practice adapt to a new culture. But I think it's a, an extremely important and necessary aspect of it. And 
uh, one that I've really wrestled with personally for, for years at this point. What's occurring to me as you're talking about this is first the concept that like without a student, there can be no teacher. And in that way, the teaching itself must adapt to whatever it may be teaching that, um, that the teacher is not necessarily the, the superior component in this relationship, but the relationship itself is the entirety of that communication. And so um, the communication and that difficulty in and of itself is kind of like the whole important experience. And it's not like everything is moving toward an endpoint, but it's just however that relationship is going right now is its own wonderful thing. And I was also thinking about um, uh, the book Cutting Through Spiritual Materialism. In that book, he talks about um, how uh, he, there's some practical advice. And he says how, like, if you're really serious about meditation, you should have a teacher. And this gets down to what you're talking about um, as far as monasteries are concerned, that having that spiritual core gives somebody a kind of journey or something to have a relationship with or something to trust in a certain sense, such that this isn't mere chaos. Um, I always wondered about that, though, because like with the collectivism or with the individualism, we're, we're dealing with our own personal beliefs. And I feel like a huge um, what people are trying to do when they're practicing this stuff a lot of the time is they're trying to get away with away from all the distinctions they're trying to make in the world and that is emphasized through their ideas and through their beliefs um about the world and so i think that like the reason that the answer for somebody that's collectivist versus individualistic the reason their teaching has to be different is because they need to move away from the wrong kinds of ideas um so it's kind of like the medicine is going to be different depending on your ailment um, but I didn't know what you thought about why there might need to be a teacher. Like, why is it so difficult for somebody to encounter the truth through their own bootstrapping, so to speak? Right, right. Well, in Buddhism, they talk about the three jewels, the three treasures, um, you know, the Buddhists love their numbered lists. And I'm always going <laughs> on about this because I think it's it's one of the easiest ways to access the core of the Buddhist teachings by mm -hmm. just learning about the different lists and sort of letting them stew in your brain and, you know, maybe even memorizing them. And this is a really good one. And um, the, so the three jewels are the Buddha, the Dharma and the Sangha, which is, you know, you might say is the Buddha properly, but you could also say is the teacher. And then there's the teachings and then a community. And, you know, there's a lot of different ways to look at this, but one very practical way is if you want to succeed on the spiritual path, there's three, let's say, useful, if not necessary conditions, uh, having a teacher, having teachings to practice or techniques or understandings of the path, and then also a community that you're doing these practices with. And 
I have benefited tremendously from having each of these in my life mm. in different ways, uh, at different times. And of course, conversely, when I haven't had them, when I've say had teachings, but no community or teachings, but no teacher, then I've struggled and found it very hard. So mm. I think practically it's just kind of good sense to uh, put each of these three in place. I think that they're uh, each very useful and move you along, accelerate you quite quickly on the path. It's an interesting point though, of whether it's necessary. Um, it reminds me of kind of an interesting um, artifact of the Buddhist cosmology, where there's this concept of a, a, a Pacheka Buddha. Have you heard this term? No. So a Pacheka Buddha is um, someone who has attained an extremely deep realization basically completed the spiritual path and yet is largely incapable of teaching others how mm. to attain that realization. So they're kind of like a hermit that's gone all the way, but can't really help anyone get there. Mm. Um, this is in contrast, of course, to an actual Buddha, where a Buddha has completed the spiritual path so fully that they are capable of meeting any kind of being and giving a spiritual teaching that is of benefit to that being, uh, which is uh, actually the aspiration that I have as you know someone who's taken the Bodhisattva vows. That's been a very inspiring lens for me in my own practice of I'm going to go through many rebirths so that I live every kind of life and uh, am capable of teaching each kind of person. Um, that's been very inspiring to me. It's just a lens. It's just a way of seeing like a, a myth, you might say. But mm -hmm. it's a very inspiring way of looking at it. So I think, it, you know, th this is speculation at this point, but I think it would be possible to uh, move forward spiritually without a teacher or a community or teachings to sort of independently re-derive the spiritual path. Uh, but it probably will be a lot slower and probably more challenging, uh, more traps, more obstacles, but it does seem possible, at least in theory. And, you know, I've certainly read about um, teachers that went quite far without uh, teachers of their own or, um, you know, without exposure to a particular tradition or community that that does happen. And even sometimes those teachers are, are really able to help other people. It, it's I think it's not um, so binary as the, the Buddha, Pacheka Buddha distinction might imply. But, um, you know, I think Practically speaking, if you're interested in moving forward on the spiritual path, it, it it makes good sense to have a teacher. It makes good sense to be working with some kind of tradition, and it makes good sense to have a community of practice. And, you know, if, if a particular teacher or tradition doesn't vibe with you, then you can go find a different teacher or tradition. Um, mm -hmm. You know, most teachers aren't Buddhas, so that means they might not be capable of uh, reaching you where you are or might not be the right fit for you at this moment. But if you do find that kind of student teacher fit, that student tradition fit, uh, student community fit, then then things go well. So let's say there is somebody that is not ready to commit their life to a monastery, but they are using the Headspace app or they're using the Waking Up app and they're meditating regularly and maybe doing their own personal readings what advice do you have to give them about finding a deeper community or finding a kind of mentor 
that will allow them to have a, I guess, a, a broader route with from which to to draw nutrition for their spiritual practice? Yeah, yeah, it's a great question. Um, I mean, the kind of person that you describe is fortunate. They have access to a kind of teacher in the form of a meditation app and mm -hmm. uh, a kind of teachings in the books that they're reading or things that they're being exposed to. So that's, you know, in a way you could say that's already two out of three. Um, I mean, a real, a real live teacher that you can actually interact with will be, of course, better than an app in that they'll be able to uh, hear what you say and see how you move your body and things like that and right. be able to respond to you. But, you know, an app is, is very good. And uh, I like the ones that I see out there. So I think with that kind of a person, I'd say um, it's good to hone in on the community. And uh, luckily that that might be the easiest of the three in some ways to find um, in our day and age where we're, you know, very online and there's so many different community sites and, um, you know, you and I, of course, met on Twitter. So I think Twitter mm -hmm. is great for finding spiritual community. There's really wonderful little pockets of Twitter for, you know, people doing all kinds of different practices. And yeah. um, you can kind of use that as a tuning fork for finding a community that you really resonate with. And then, you know, having conversations with people that are into the same kind of things that you're into and getting together on a Zoom call or a Discord server or Slack or something and just saying, you know, sharing what you're doing or talking about what you're learning. And that's uh, tremendously beneficial. And I'm in multiple groups like that myself right now. So there's a lot of these things out there. And of course, you mm -hmm. can always start your own and say, hey, this is the kind of group I'm looking for and I haven't found it. So I'm starting it. Uh, who wants to join? Yeah. Yeah, that is, I mean, social media these days is is often quite toxic. But the craziest thing about Twitter is that if you come in with the right attitude, you will just simply gravitate toward your people. And yes. it's so powerful. It's so powerful. I mean, right now I'm talking uh, to a girl who's just like way beyond anything that I could have ever hoped for. And it's because she found me because I was expressing myself with as much clarity and as much love and hope as I could and being genuine and fooling around and, and being myself in a way that I, I guess Twitter allows you to be because you're not feeling condemned by your peers or, or people that already have these deep relationships with you. And it gives you a kind of freedom that is difficult to understate, I think. Yeah, I, I love how you put that. And, um, you know, I certainly hear people talking about how toxic social media can be and uh, how even Twitter in particular can be like that. And I understand that. I've seen that. Um, yeah. But for me, the simplest principle with this that has borne out in my own use of it is, um, you know, your intention for it, as you say, but also, you know, the way that you show up yourself sort of uh, mirrors what comes back to you. And, and, and some of that is about, you know, what you say or who you follow or mm -hmm. what you search for, like um, things like that. But um, I don't know, I, I at least have reflected very carefully about what my intentions for engaging on social media are. And I uh, mm -hmm. make it really a practice and I'd say a spiritual practice of engaging with it in a wholesome and beneficial way. And day after day, I see that coming back to me in 
beautiful and unexpected ways that bring me great joy and connection and wonder and discovery. And uh, I think that that's a byproduct of having those wholesome intentions for using it. So, um, you know, of course it can be a cesspool of negativity, but um, <laughs> I think how you engage with it and what your intentions are, as you say, really mm -hmm. determine that. And it doesn't have to be that way. And, and when you shift it towards something more beautiful, it's, it's astonishing what will return to you. Right. And the toxicity is even a gift in a certain kind of way because it makes you reckon with the question of how you're going to deal with that. And so you get some practice of setting boundaries and then enforcing those boundaries and being like, I do not tolerate this kind of behavior. And uh, if it was just a safe space, then you wouldn't be able to cultivate this kind of the, the valuable uh, resilience that one can by reinforcing their boundaries in a way that is hopefully respectful, but ultimately self-loving and, and loving to others and loving to the community itself, um, which I find to be really valuable. I also want to shout out uh, Michael Ashcroft, who teaches the Alexander Technique. So I was thinking about him as we were talking about mentorship. And um, he has a really, you know, tight feedback system where when he's teaching the Alexander technique, um, he'll have like your hands on your back and he can sense when you're losing, um, I guess, focus or concentration or, or awareness. And uh, I think his practice is really cool. And it's a, it's a really interesting entry point into um, the spaciousness that we're talking about. But I wanted to switch gears here a little bit, talk about your blog, which I love. You cover a lot of interesting things and you're not just focused on meditation or anything like that, which I find very vibrant. But you recently posted about sexuality and I wanted to know why was this the most important thing for you to write about? Where is this really coming from in your heart? And I guess what can the normal individual do better in order to be have a better relationship with their sexuality in a spiritual way. Yeah. Thanks for asking. Um, this has been a really big milestone for me personally to have published mm -hmm. this post. And it's something that I've been thinking about and frankly avoiding for years. <laughs> uh, so it's, it's astonishing that I've put it out there and um, even more astonishing to me has been the, the positive feedback that I've received on it. Um, mm -hmm. I think I was expecting people to be angry at me or upset or offended or uh, disgusted or something, but people have just been so loving and positive and supportive and mm. fascinated by it. And uh, I've been um, really grateful for that. It's been, uh, yeah, frankly, healing for me to see how receptively people have uh, taken it. So that's been very encouraging. Um, so there was a lot in there. Let's see. Why was this the most important post for me to write? And mm -hmm. what can someone do to improve their relationship to sexuality? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I think... Hmm. I think that over the years, I, as I've engaged in these practices, I've had a lot of opportunities to notice different uh, 
limiting or false beliefs that I have about sexuality and engaging socially. And for me, I'm almost on a mission to root those out where these false beliefs, these limitations, limiting beliefs, patterns, uh, I want to drop them. They're not serving me. Uh, Mm -hmm. They're constraining my ability to flourish in my own life and also to serve others. So uh, when I smell that kind of a limitation, it's important to me to move through it. And I believe that these practices have served me personally tremendously. They've brought me great joy, but also, uh, I think, real spiritual shifts and insights. And so from that perspective, uh, I feel sort of an obligation to share them with the world for people to know about them and uh, dive into practicing them and uh, so that they can see those benefits for themselves. And uh, part of part of the intention was just to raise awareness of, hey, there's a there there. I'm not an expert. Uh, I'm not someone that has mastered these things, but there's a there there and there's something you can explore if you want to. And if you don't want to, that's okay. That's no problem. But if it is interesting to you, it's you have to know that it's there. And uh, I didn't right. know that it was there for many years of my own practice. And then when I discovered it, it was just um, uh, like a, a new gateway opening up for me that supported my meditation practice and my ability to enjoy and flourish in my own life and connect to other people and in beautiful ways. So I want other people to have those kinds of experiences and shifts if they so desire. Um, as to what someone can do, I think um, uh, it's a little bit constrained by my own experience. And as I say, I'm an amateur, not an expert. So, mm-hmm. uh, but I think uh, I, I put some exercises in the article that people can try and um, they're sort of a little bit adjusted to whether you have a male body or a female body, it's going to be mm-hmm. a little different, but the, the, the first and most basic exercise is just to uh, essentially pleasure yourself without uh, tensing your body or, uh, you know, holding your breath or things like that. And to explore what that's like and to feel what that feels like in your body when you don't, allow tension to come in, but you instead relax and don't hold your breath, but instead have a slow, smooth abdominal breath. And in a way, that's not actually that different from the exercise that you and I did at the beginning of the podcast. Mm -hmm. But you bring that same kind of relaxation and open awareness and slow, gentle breathing in the lower body into, say, masturbation or the sex act. And then you see how that shifts things and you explore and you play and delightful things can happen when you go in that direction. It was very illuminating to read your entry. Uh, Something I would like to dig into a little bit is that like in Buddhism, there's um, I have to be careful about how I word this, but there's rejection is a wrong word, but there's, there's a moving away from the um, fulfillment of sexual desire. So I was wondering how you interact with that idea or how you read it, because like, there, yeah, there are some passages and people say, you know, oh, the Buddha didn't necessarily say that, et cetera, about how um, his disciples shouldn't be fulfilling their their sexual desires. So how do you read that? And what do you think about um, that criticism? Yes, well, um 
this is something that I have wrestled with personally in my life and my mind and my own connection to the spiritual path. And I think mm-hmm. I'm not done wrestling with that, uh, mm-hmm. but I have come to a kind of peace with it as well. So um, that the way that I look at this is, is, is first to say that there are multiple Buddhisms. Uh, a lot of the Buddhism that I've been exposed to is the Theravadan Buddhism, which is sort of a more conservative, older strand. And in the Theravadan text, the Buddha says things that are very critical of sense pleasures, and Mm -hmm. he does not endorse them. And instead, you know, talks about the pleasures of the contemplative life and the contemplative path and endorses those instead of, say, sensual pleasures, including but not limited to sexual pleasures. Um, This is to some extent carried over into Mahayana Buddhism, which I've also been exposed to. Um, and, you know, the Bodhisattva vows that I have taken come from the Mahayana traditions. Um, in Vajrayana, the, you know, third and uh, chronologically most recent vehicle of Buddhism, uh, I, from my understanding, and I know very little about Vajrayana because I've been exposed to it the least, but to my understanding, there's a a sort of different attitude there towards pleasure and Mm -hmm. it can be seen as a, uh, entry point into spiritual practice. That's, that's sort of, uh, hearsay you might say. So, uh, Mm -hmm. don't take my word for it. You can look into that if you're interested, but, um, I've also of course been exposed to, um, to some extent also an amateur here, but to the, the Taoist views of it. And the Taoists I think are, are much more affirming of sexuality and they see it as connected to health and flourishing and even a way towards uh, spiritual awakening. So um, that's where some of these practices that I talk about in the post come from. Um, it's a little bit tricky with Taoism because there's, there's sort of a numbers game where Buddhism is, is far more prevalent than Taoism and um, you know, I, I've worked with some Taoist teachers, but it's my time with them has been limited. And, uh, you know, there's sort of quality control issues and things like this. It's it's hard to find a, a Taoist teacher. And yeah. um, the ones that I have found that I've really trust, I've had relatively limited time with. But my sense is there there's a very sort of affirming attitude towards sexuality there and uh, an acceptance of it. And for me, that's something I'm more interested in. Um, I think in the Theravadan frame, which is still something that's have quite been of tremendous benefit to me, um, it's it's a little bit simplified in that if you're a monk, you don't have sex, you don't masturbate, you're not in relationships. Mm-hmm. That's that's the Theravadan frame. So I wasn't constrained to that in the training environment that I was in. Uh, but lay people are free to have sex and uh, be in relationships, and you still want to engage ethically with sexuality as a layperson, but uh, you're, you're free to have sex. There's, there's sort of warning labels attached to it, but uh, it's not verboten or something like that. It's um, more of a context specific advice of if you're a monk, this is not useful. If you're not a monk, uh, be careful, basically. Um, so in some ways, looking back on it, I think that I had to leave the monastic training environment in order mm-hmm. to feel in integrity with myself, just with right. myself. But in order to write that post, um, I think that I came to see in my own time training that the recommendations in the Pali Canon about monks not having sex are just sound, basically. Uh, it's it's useful to put aside sexuality if you're dedicating yourself full time to contemplative training. Um, 
but you don't have to dedicate yourself full time to training. And uh, I think it's worth looking at issues of, say, ethics and clinging with sexuality. But I don't think it's intrinsically bad. And in fact, I think it can be delightful and also even um, a, sort of a fuel for spiritual practice if right. if you engage carefully and thoughtfully with it. So, um, you know, I'm a lay person now. I do celebrate my own sexuality and uh, make it a part of my own spiritual practice and growth. So I may be misunderstanding uh, the the approach that Buddhism has to sexuality, but um, I'm going to run through a lot of if thens, <laughs> and I'm sure there are some some problems in this chain that you can. Uh, Explain to me, but I, I talked about Teddy Rackevelt, who is currently like suspended on Twitter. <laughs> yeah, but, poor Teddy. Yeah, <laughs> but I love that guy. See him soon on there. But um, but we were talking a little bit about Buddhism and like the way I kind of see it is that like if the monastic life is a higher kind of life and uh, if we assume that people in monasteries aren't supposed to be having sex, and the bodhisattva's goal is for all people to become enlightened. Um, the image in my mind is that like the bodhisattva is actually like bringing about the end of the human race because he's going to, he or she is going to be promoting less sexual activity. And as we approach everyone becoming enlightened, um, the, the human population growth rate will turn negative until people are gone. So is that, is this a crazy idea that I'm having or like, is that kind of what, what's being sold? Well, there's a, there's a lot there. Um, the first thing I'd say is there are certainly views of monasteries as higher than lay practice, but I don't think that that's necessary or even um, the default say in mm -hmm. Buddhism at large, but there are, leanings like that in certain places, but I don't think that that's necessarily true. And I don't see it as true for myself, um, hmm. that monasteries are say intrinsically better. There's, there's actually a lovely passage in the brothers Karamazov where, um, if I'm recalling correctly, Alyosha says that, um, lay people are stronger than monks. And it's, if you're weak, you have to go to the monastery. Uh -huh. uh, and I, I think there's a wisdom to that of like the monastery is where you go to be humbled and to grow because like the, the world just can't handle you and how broken and messed up you are. Mm. Uh, so it's like a safe place to fall apart and rebuild. And if, mm. if you're doing okay, then it's good to be in the world and be of service. So um, that's the first thing I'd say. And then, yeah, I think it's, it's fair to describe certain strains of Buddhism as in essentially anti-natalistic. Right. Um, they describe birth as a form of suffering in the same way that it's accepted that death is suffering. In 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 traditional Buddhism, you would see birth as a form of suffering. And um, you know, of course, it's it's wonderful to celebrate a being coming into the world. But from another lens, you can certainly see birth as suffering. Where, I mean. Um, I haven't witnessed a birth, but to my understanding, it's it's it can be extremely painful for a mother and for the child, and um, you know there's there's suffering there, and you're and of course it, it, from the Buddhist perspective, as soon as you're in the world, it it necessitates that you will go through aging, sickness, and death, or at the very least, death. You may not age, and you may not get sick, but you will die, and that is also a form of suffering. So um, 
from that lens, yes, Buddhism can be anti-natalistic and, and does wish to bring about uh, the end of all beings. Um, but in that lens, that's a form of compassion where you're trying to end suffering for all beings. It's not uh, like a nihilistic view. It's, it's a compassionate view. And then I'd say, um, you know, there are other strains of Buddhism that uh, I, I don't think that that view is as prevalent where um, mm-hmm. it might be more along the lines of how our culture tends to see things. Um, I, I think that there's a wisdom to the traditional ways of looking at it. I don't think it's complete, but um, you know, you were talking earlier about balance and moving from one extreme to another. And, you know, we might be a little bit extreme on the pro-natalistic side in our culture. And there, I think there is wisdom to uh, seeing birth as a form of suffering, even if it's uncomfortable or unfamiliar for us. Mm. Uh, I don't think that's complete either. I don't just endorse antinatalism, um, you know, unequivocally, but you know, we might be a little bit on the other side of the extreme here. So I'm going to take an opposite position here, uh, which is like going to argue against a fundamental tenet of Buddhism. But so the, the fundamental tenet of Buddhism is like, everybody's like life is suffering and suffering is not so good. And uh, Teddy on our conversation, he was saying about how not only is suffering good, it's necessary, right? Like without suffering, we do not have the richness of life that a life without any suffering is an extremely shallow life. And how do you respond to this? It's kind of like the Christian perspective in a way that like one must sacrifice and one must go through ordeals and Jesus must be tortured on the cross for the betterment of all. And this is necessary. And this is a metaphor for the way one should live their life, not to, you know, try to approach personal contentment, but in order to live a divine life. So how do you see that perspective? Do you think um, that it squares with the Buddhist perspective? Is uh, the approach just like totally different ideas that I'm conflating incorrectly? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, that's an interesting question. Um, I think that the Buddhist word dukkha which mm-hmm. we're translating as suffering is right. an extremely nuanced term and different people talk about it differently. Um, so, so I, I throw that in to start. Uh, right. The second is I, I think it's not um, incompatible with the view that we do grow through suffering that, uh, you know, that there's beauty and meaning that comes from difficult experiences and growth and so on. Um mm-hmm. I think they're entirely compatible. Uh, I think that Dukkha is pointing to aspects of experience and consciousness and being in this universe that are about perception and the way in which we engage in perception and behavior and the way that the frame of suffering is necessary for growth and beauty and meaning is largely about just behavior, I'd say, about mm-hmm. our way of engaging with being alive and being in the world. And from that perspective, I don't think that they're incompatible. I think they're two different ways of seeing that might be useful in different contexts. So, so again, if you're in the world, then yeah, suffering is useful for growth and development and beauty and meaning. 
And then if you're trying to focus on contemplative practice, uh, it's useful to tune into dissatisfactoriness and the ways in which you aren't satisfied with your experience. And there is suffering both in gross forms like aging, sickness, death, and so on, but also on more subtle levels of, you know, our perceptual circuits, essentially. Um, that's a useful lens. And I think a lot of this is is context dependent. So mm-hmm. seeing the world as suffering and being alive as suffering is very useful if you're doing contemplative practice full-time, say, in a monastery. And right. um, the view that Teddy is espousing, which I'm sympathetic to, is is very useful, say, in, in a life of service and engagement with the world. Hmm. Well, this is making me think about, like, this whole suffering thing, uh, <laughs> a very, very uh, nuanced term, suffering thing. But uh, what, what this is making me think of is um, you write about productivity and leadership. And I think of these as kind of very modern concepts. Of course, this kind of thing goes back, you know, thousands of thousands of years. But what I'm kind of talking about is like this highly capitalistic society. And the way I see it is that when we were in small tribes, we have boundaries, we have wars, um, we're trying to get resources, we're forming alliances, there's trade. So there's this concept of ownership and um, and boundaries and everything that we participate with today. Um, but that kind of developed over time into something that I call like the capitalist idea um, that we now see on Twitter, et cetera, as like the cult of productivity, that what is important isn't really being happy, it's being productive. And you're supposed to derive meaning from being productive and you're supposed to derive meaning from being creative. And you see this reflected everywhere, even as it concerns like giving back to your community. And then we look at something like effective altruism, which is like, it's not about having meaningful, meaningful experiences. It's about going out, doing the grind, getting your money, and then giving it away in a productive way. It's not about having that, um, that valuable now where somebody's smiling at you, etc. So as you're writing about productivity and leadership, how do you think about these things in such a way that glorifies um, that glorifies the humanity of experience versus this um, concept that glorifies um, product that you know economics, etc. Right, right. Uh, it's a lovely question. It's a lovely question. I've been interested in these things for a long time, and I'd say my interest in them grew through the kind of transition that I alluded to earlier, where I started to care about others and the world on a deeper level and start to be started to be directed by compassion, by care mm-hmm. for others. And so that interest, which, you know, I got interested in productivity, I guess, in high school. I, I don't know. I was reading the Lifehacker blog way back when. Yeah. And that was just, you know, totally what you're talking about. Um, you know, maximize your efficiency so that you can be better at working and making money. And, you know, I was in high school, so I wasn't in a job, but it was in that sort of cultural milieu. But for me, these things have taken on a, a, a form that's, uh, I'd say, unrelated to that. I, I'm not particularly interested in 
making money. Uh, I think money is is a, a resource that's beneficial for engaging in the world. So I'm not uh, against right. it, but I'm not, you know, s- you know, losing sleep at night thinking about how can I make more money or something like that. Um, for me, productivity, leadership, strategy are about uh, how can I be of actual benefit to the world in my lifetime? And they're tools for amplifying my ability to serve others, which is something I'm dedicated to. And, you know, this reminds me, I, I do a lot of work with my friend, James Stuber on Twitter. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, he and I have both gotten really into this, that maybe you've seen this meme that's like the the like bell curve meme with the, the uh, have you seen this meme? The low wit, top wit thing? Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And, um, you know, we're sort of looking at that from a product- productivity angle of what moves somebody from, um, you know, I just do whatever I want through, I'm going to grind and get everything done in the perfect, most optimal way back to, I just do whatever I want. And I said to him, you know, I think it's just uh, doing good things that you actually believe in, that you can wake up and feel proud of yourself that you're doing this kind of work. And Mm -hmm. to the extent that you're not doing that, that you're doing work in the world that you believe is say neutral or even worse, negatively affecting others, then mm-hmm. um, I think that that is essentially doing spiritual damage to yourself yeah. where you're going against your own conscience and mm-hmm. of course hurting others. So I think that's the really big difference of like, what is the motivation and the intention with these tools? And if it's to make money so that uh, corporations can grow, then yeah, you're going to suffer and hurt other people. And if it's to be of genuine service to the world, um, I would say not just to humans, but also to the planet, then to the extent that you're aligned with that, then these are just tools that will help you to have service, be able to serve the world at a larger scale. Hmm. I love that answer. Before we wrap up, is there anything... Uh, that's on your heart to share or anything you want to talk about any topics that we haven't covered that you think are really important anything like that well i'd be curious to ask uh you know circling back to where we started of uh what your experience is like right now and you know how it's shifted through this conversation what your experience of your body and your awareness is like uh, at this time Throughout the show, I've been like um, kind of rubbing my hands together in a rhythmic way that mirrors the energy of the conversation. I noticed that pretty vividly. So if it's high energy, I'm like kind of rubbing them together uh, actively. And then when it's lower energy, um, my attention is returning to like my feet and, and the energy in my legs. Um, so seeing that motion of energy is, was an interesting, uh, thing to focus on. And I also found myself kind of, um, paying attention to the ideas that are coming into my mind as far as, uh, the things that are being sparked by what you're saying. Um, and then slowly returning like you do to the breath, returning to being fully focused on, on what you were saying in the moment. Um, so for me, it was, it was deeply meditative and very valuable and enjoyable. And how was it for you? Yeah, it was wonderful to have a conversation rooted in that kind of awareness and to Mm -hmm. know that you were also there. And, uh, 
I found that when I was sort of leaning more towards distraction or contraction, actually, that my shoulders would tense. And then I was yeah. like, oh, my shoulders are tense. So I would mm -hmm. relax those. And that, that seemed to be correlated to uh, the kinds of contraction I was talking about earlier. And then if I let the shoulders relax, it was relatively easy to stay in a, a place of spacious awareness. And, and also, I don't know, um, I think really noticing that I've noticed this before, but it was, if I do say so myself, particularly on display in this conversation, that when again, when you're in the present moment, uh, you you respond appropriately. And so I, I'm uh, pleased with the things that came out of our mouths. And uh, <laughs> it's nice to see that connection between the broad awareness and presence in the moment with a really delightful conversation. Yeah, and it's things like this that, allow you to cultivate the kind of trust that one needs to have in order to let go of their anxiety, right? It's that people are sitting on their anxiety forever that they, they think that they need it. And then, uh, you know, I, I love having notes and, and structure and everything like that, but it can also be a crutch, right? Where suddenly I'm looking for the right moment to jump in instead of listening to what is being said. And, um, Having an experience like this is just so wonderful in in my own personal growth in that, you know, I don't have to rely on that kind of anxiety. Um, so I love this. This is wonderful. I am going to say that Tashin is uh, accessible at T-A-S-S-H-I-N dot com. He's also on Twitter at T-A-S-S-H-I-N Fogelman on Twitter, and you can get more from me at becomingcreature.substack.com. I'm not cutting this at all as an exercise and keeping myself honest, because I knew that if I let myself cut it, then I would give myself more, more pauses, more beats, and I wouldn't let myself just be in the moment. So this is going out straight as it is. And uh, Tashin, you are an amazing guest. I'm so happy I was able to have you on. Thank you so much for uh for this this beautiful time yeah i loved it thanks for having me nick <laughs>